Well, we are in a series on John 13 through 17 in which we are looking at Jesus' final teaching to his disciples, particularly with an eye on how he taught them to be his disciples once he was ruling at the right hand of the Father in what feels like his absence. So in the last weeks, we've looked at how deeply Jesus loves his people and how he expressed that through, for example, washing his disciples' feet. And we've talked about how the community centered on Jesus is defined by his love and is in turn, uh, we live out of that same kind of love for Jesus and for each other. And that love, as we've been saying, been saying is it's not a, a sentimental, uh, nice feelings for each other sort of love, but rather is defined by the commitment to willingly sacrifice for the good of someone else. You see, love as, as God defines it is always an outward facing, living for the sake of another action-based love. And that action, that, that kind of love, it will sometimes obviously involve uh, positive emotion, but many times this kind of love will actually go against our desires. It will actually go against our, our sinful personal desires for self because it's grounded in our commitment to be for the good of the other, not in our personal feelings. So it's, it's much more. It's so much more than our feelings. It's more than a few nice gestures here and there. It's, it's a lifestyle of outward-facing, self-giving, modeled on Jesus and how he loved and how he continues to love us. Well, in chapter 13, Jesus, he goes so far as to say that, that love for each other, that is love, God's people's love for each other, will be what truly brings the church to the world's attention, as opposed to, say, scandal or hatred or politics or violence. And it will be one of the most important witnesses to the reality of Jesus and his resurrection. And we're going to see that him talk about that again today. And last week, we, we talked specifically about Jesus's foundational claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. And only those who are in relationship with him, who truly know him and endeavor to follow him, actually have life and in turn have life with the Father. And what's more, because of that, Jesus is, is far from being absent. He is still very much at work in the world today. In fact, his ministry exploded in numbers after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And he, he continues to this day to be at work through his people, people just like us. So how you live absolutely matters to God. It matters to him and to the growth of his kingdom. Well, this week I'm dividing up the back half, half of, of chapter 14 in admittedly, is, is kind of a, an unnatural way. I mean, the thought really goes all the way to verse 31, not verse 24, where I'm going to stop today. But I'm doing this simply because, frankly, there's so much here. It's, it's a really rich text, and, and I don't want to, well, I don't want to needlessly rush us through a text like this. And at the same time, I'm just not skilled enough to preach this in 35 minutes or less. It's just too much for me to do. So I'm just going to go up through verse 24. So pick it up with verse 15 with me as I read it. If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, but it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me and will be, uh, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that this word that comes from your son will be good for us, that it will move in us, that it will work in our hearts and our minds and our feet, that we would want to pattern our lives on you, not because it gets us anything, but because you have loved us so deeply that you are with us. In fact, you claim here to indwell us through your Son and the power of the Spirit. So Lord, we pray to be a people shaped by you who love you in return and want to walk in your ways. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this section begins with the familiar, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And earlier in his teaching, Jesus has said something it's like this, but it's, it's slightly different. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And that's, that's early chapter 13. And then again, earlier in this chapter, in chapter 14, he said, anyone who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in turn, at the end of that section that we ended last week, uh, he says, we are to go to him. We are to name him in prayer, seeking to glorify God and his kingdom, which is exactly what Jesus himself did. So it's telling that Jesus isn't giving a specific grocery list of laws to do. No, he's giving us a way of life to emulate that's centered on him. And it's also telling that he doesn't say, if you want heaven or you want eternal life, do this. No, he says, if you love me, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. And as we said last week, the goal of salvation is not so much a place, though clearly, you know, we will be somewhere taking up space and time. No, it's, it's a person. It's a person. That would be like assuming the goal of marriage is a house or a yard or the wedding gifts. No, the goal of marriage is union with another person. The reason Jesus gave his life for us is so that we might have life forever with the triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, you know, just like a marriage is a calling to a way of life, so if you love your spouse, you will live a certain way. In fact, if you're doing it right, your marriage will define every single other relationship you have. Well, so too is the life we have with Jesus. And that's his point. That's why 
he repeats this teaching about love for him or for neighbors or, or keeping his word over and over again. It's why for us as Christians, as opposed to any other group of people, the central defining thing about us, the thing Paul most often says about Christians in his letters is that we are in Christ. I mean, think of all the ways people try uh, to define themselves. They're myriad, right? You are in Christ means the fundamental way you are defined is not a self-definition. It's not how I think about me. It's how God thinks about me. It's the difference between a child who is named by her parents and given a family identity versus a child who names herself and has to come up with her own identity. Well, look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the Greek word that's being used there, and it shows up in the sermon title, is paraclete. Paraclete, and it's being, not parakeet, paraclete, and it's being translated here in the Pew Bibles in the ESV that we use as helper. And that word, it's, it's actually kind of hard to, to translate because there's no direct uh, single word in English that gets at it. It literally means the one called alongside, para being alongside, and kaleo, which means the one called, the one called alongside. So it's why if you look up various translations, you're going to see helper or advocate, as in the sense of a defense advocate, or an encourager, or a counselor, or even as as one commentator prefers to translate it, true friend. And if you think about that, you know, a true friend is one who helps, is one who speaks truth to you, is one who encourages you, is one who stays by your side, it's got your back. That's, if you imagine all those things together, you're, you're getting at what uh, paraclete means. Now, Jesus already has that role. He already has this role with his disciples. That's why he says another paraclete. The Spirit, you see, is on Jesus. And remember, think to his baptism and how the Spirit descended upon him. And he, he walks alongside his disciples as their true friend. So the Spirit has already been amongst them. But In his physical absence, Jesus has asked God the Father to pour out the very same spirit that is on him, on his people too. And of course, this is the fulfillment of what God promised through the prophet Joel, and it came to fruition with Pentecost. And remember the context, though, in which Jesus is saying all this, because it's really important. He's announced that he would soon be betrayed. He will soon go to his death, and his disciples, in that moment feel lost and and confused, and probably there's a bit of anxiety there, and and rightly so. I mean, how can they go on? How can they keep up this this work? How how will Jesus' rule even commence? How will his kingdom come or grow without him there? But he says he will be with them, and it will be, and actually it will be deeper, deeper and more intimate way 
than what they assumed. In fact, than what they were experiencing in that moment, as hard to believe as that is. As he says in verse 23, through his death and resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit, the triune God would make his home and his people. That is a huge statement. So whereas God tabernacled with his people, just follow the Old Testament, where he tabernacled with his people in the wilderness and then with God's presence um, through the temple, and then again with Jesus, you see this growing depth and permanence of God's presence with his people, with the Spirit. Believe it or not, it goes even deeper in the triune God tabernacles amongst his people and in his people. So as hard as this is to believe, you have a more intimate relationship to Jesus right now than his disciples did in that moment when they're hearing this teaching. It should blow your mind. You know, notice that Jesus says in verse 17 that the Spirit will dwell with you and in you. So those prepositions, with and in, and then the plural use there are important. So if you think of this in good Southern vernacular, which of course is the only appropriate English, it should read, the Spirit will dwell with y'all and in y'all. So on the one hand, for the Spirit to dwell with us means that he gathers with God's people together. God's people together in a unique way. It's like how at at Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on individuals, but it happened when they were gathered together. That's why I, I often ask for the Spirit to be at work amongst us in our gathered worship that we might see Jesus. I prayed for that already. And I'm not praying that we would physically see Jesus, so that would be pretty great. Uh, I mean, rather, that he would be at work among us through his spirit. So if you're not taking the gathering of the saints seriously, if if you're neglecting the gathered worship, as as Hebrews says, we should not. And by the way, I just have to say this, you know, online worship or listening to the recorded sermon it's really tough to engage. If, you, if you've had to do that, it's one thing if you're stuck at home and you're, you know, you're, you're vulnerable and all that. But listen, the people who are listening right now, it's not good sound quality. They hear me sing above everybody else. It's not pleasant, right? And so you wind up being more passive than actually you know, participating in. And you're actually missing out on life with the Spirit as he dwells with God's people. So when we willfully choose not to be with God's people, we're willfully saying no to the Spirit. You see, the Spirit's work is a communal work first. It's the way of God's presence with his people together. And this is exactly the sort of thing Jesus has in mind, for example, with Matthew 18, when he he talks about church discipline. And he says, you know, when two or three are gathered together in his name, seeking to do his will, he is present in and amongst them. Now, of course, the Spirit also indwells God's people individually. And this is where I think most of our minds naturally go when we think about the indwelling of the Spirit and our union with Christ. And you know what? Rightly so. Rightly so. You are in Christ. Singular and plural. Indwelled by the Spirit so that the triune God, think about that, the triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit makes his home in you. It's why Paul speaks of both the church together as God's temple, but also as individuals. Literally, as he says there, our bodies being temples 
of the Holy Spirit. Either way, Jesus' point is that even though he is absent from our sight, he is very much with us and among us and indwelling us. We are not alone, though sometimes it may feel like that. You know, one of the great misunderstandings about the Spirit's presence and his work in our life is that we should be able to feel him to some measure. You know, kind of like how people in Star Wars can feel the force, you know, moving in them or something like that. Well, sometimes that may be true, not in the Star Wars sense, but in the sense of feeling the Spirit move. And I've been in gatherings or in you know, situations where I felt the Spirit's leading. I, I've also been in situations where I think I felt malevolent or dark spirits at work, too. You know, if the Spirit wants to move us emotionally, which is usually what people mean when they say they feel something, He will. But it's not something we can create or necessarily even anticipate. And what's more, just because you feel something doesn't mean it's actually the Spirit. It might be your own empathy or romanticism, or sentimentalism, or or like an actor, maybe you can conjure up feelings really quickly, especially if you want to feel something. I mean, if you just put any top 10, you know, romantic ballad between 1980 and probably 93 on the radio, I can feel something. You know why? It's because I was a teenager then, and for whatever reason, Chicago means something, but it's empty. I can make myself feel those things. You know, personally, there, there have been times where I felt an overwhelming urge to pray or to speak into someone's life, but it's not a feeling at all. It was really a conviction that I needed to point someone to Jesus as fast as I could. And sometimes, you know what? I feel that while preaching too. And that's what the Spirit loves to do, don't you know? He loves to point people to Christ. The spirit of truth, remember Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The spirit of truth points us continually back to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And, you know, I have felt strong convictions over sin, too. Maybe that's been your experience as well, or had strong thoughts that took the form of, do not do this, or this is not the way of the Lord. And I think that is the spirit at work, too. But, you know, none of this stuff is is an everyday Experience. You know, I have never once, I have never once experienced anything akin to what is on display in many charismatic churches, and I've been in them. And, and I have no doubt, I have no doubt that I am filled by the Spirit. Why? Because I know and love Jesus, and I am convinced that without the Spirit, I would not. I would not. I certainly would not love Him. Even in in non-charismatic churches, there is the assumption that that to truly worship, you you must engage with whatever the emotional feel, the music, or the moment is trying to convey. And I think this is so powerful for us that even now with with the hymns we have, we feel a little dead singing them. That, well, maybe we should be feeling something, but this kind of music, uh, it doesn't really resonate with me. So if it's a lament, like a Good Friday, You should feel sad. That's the assumption. Or if it's a praise hymn, you should feel upbeat and joyful, no matter what happened to you on the way here. Or if it's a confession of sin, you should feel guilty. You know, the Spirit's chief work is not to create an emotional palette fit for a menu of praise songs. He's leading us closer to Jesus and sometimes, 
Not every time, but sometimes that will affect our emotions. But sometimes not. It's like the difference between Lydia and the Philippian jailer of Acts 16. You know, Lydia heard Paul speak about Jesus in a very calm, just, you know, they're basically at a prayer meeting. She hears him speak about Jesus. God opened her heart to it, and she believed. And soon after that, Paul and Silas were jailed, and as they were singing hymns at midnight, because who doesn't sing hymns at midnight in a jail, right? As they're singing, there's an earthquake. And then the prison doors are knocked loose and the the chains and the restraints are not loosed. And and, and the the jailer, knowing that this is going to be blamed on him, starts to commit suicide because that will be better than the the torture and crucifixion that is coming for him. But Paul calls out to him, stop, we're still here. The jailer, in turn, I'm sure having heard Paul and Silas singing, says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And he comes to faith. So imagine the church meeting a month after this, right? Where they're they're swapping stories. And Lydia and the jailer, they're comparing the work of the Holy Spirit. And Lydia, you know, says, well, I I heard Paul preach and I believed him and, and, and here I am. And the jailer's like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? I had an earthquake. And like I heard singing and it was crazy. I almost killed myself. You know, so just imagine the difference between those two testimonies. And so some people, they absolutely do have dramatic experiences. And, you know, we love them, right? Nobody gets the, wants the, the special testimony time to be like, well, I, I grew up in the faith and then there's never been a time I didn't know Jesus. Like, what? You don't have a story? You know, sometimes it is really dramatic and it's incredible when that happens. But often... It's very much like Lydia. It's quiet. It's simple. It's not very dramatic. You know, in the vast majority of the time, I don't feel the presence of the Spirit at all. But of course, that that raises the question, if, if you don't have emotions, or you feel like you can't feel him, or you don't, maybe have something dramatic, how do you know you have the Spirit? Well, a really simple answer is that you believe in Jesus. Without the Spirit, you would not. But there's still more to it than that, and we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Well, look at verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will. Well, Jesus is speaking primarily here about his his death and resurrection. And very soon, Jesus would be crucified into the world. That's that, right? Dead is dead. But he would be raised from the dead, and his disciples would be witness to that. And in seeing him, it would confirm to them everything that he had taught them. In that day, when they saw Jesus face to face, post-resurrection, they would see that they would never lose him again. But they would... Never be orphans, that because Jesus is in the Father and they are in Jesus, and think back to that imagery we looked at with the beloved disciple in chapter 13 of him being in the chest of Jesus and how it describes Jesus in chapter 1 as being basically in the chest of God the Father. You know, they too, the disciples, are in Jesus, and because he lives, they will too. It's his resurrection that will confirm everything he said. And Christianity 
absolutely hangs on Jesus rising from the dead. If he did not, then this is all mythology. But Jesus, as Frederick Bruner points out, is is also speaking about the giving of the Spirit and the occasional interactions with the risen Christ that the disciples would experience. Like, just think of Paul's very dramatic encounter on the road to Damascus. And ultimately, he has in view the long term of the second coming of Christ. So though it appears to the world that, that we are alone, right? That we, we worship a God of our imagination and it's really just us in here. Those who have the spirit know better. Read verse 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Manifest it is show myself to him. So do not read this as perfection language. To read what Jesus says here as perfection language would be, I don't know, it's, it's like turning on you know, a college basketball game and there's a guy at the free throw and he misses the shot and you, you say, I thought he played basketball. Well, he does, but he's, he's not perfect. You see, if you love Jesus, you will intentionally pattern your life on his life. You will purposefully, purposefully, not perfectly, purposefully take his teachings to heart and seek to live by them. And this is part of how you know you have the Spirit. See, no one chooses to pattern their life on Jesus without the Spirit. I mean, think of it this way. Who acts as if they are married? I mean, literally acts as if they are married when they aren't actually married. Now, people who are either deluded or trying to deceive someone else, but but no one would act as if they were married. It's nonsensical to act married when you aren't because, well, you don't have the relationship, right? But if you are married, what is the best possible reason for a spouse to keep his or her wedding vows? To prove she is worthy of the marriage? No, that's beside the point. She's already married. No, it's because her spouse loves her. And she loves her spouse. And for Christians, we live this way fundamentally out of our love for God because he has so loved us first. So what is the best possible reason we have, for example, for taking the Ten Commandments seriously and living by them? Again, same reason, because Jesus loves us. And we love Jesus. And because we have Jesus, we have the love of the Father and the Spirit too. You know, so quite simply, you can know if you have Jesus not necessarily by your feelings, so they can be there at times. It's rather that you have loved him in return and you have intentionally chosen at cost to yourself, like wedding vows, to walk in his ways. Perfectly? No. Purposefully? Yes. Now it says Judas, not Iscariot, and we aren't, we aren't actually sure exactly who this person is, but it's not the Judas everyone knows. I think he asks a great question. He says, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, that is show yourself to us and not to the world? So in other words, why will Jesus show himself to his people, but not to the world? And it's a little confusing, you know, especially when Jesus is the Christ, the one ruling over all things. I mean, shouldn't the world see it's God and King? I can tell you at that time, you know, Caesar wanted people to know 
He wanted to be seen and heard. It's no different than any other world power today. Why is Jesus different? Well, another way of asking this is how can the world see that Jesus is risen and ruling if they can't see him for themselves? Well, Jesus' answer, which the world finds completely unsatisfying, and so do some Christians, by the way, is that he has chosen to make himself known through his people and how they live out his kingdom. So clearly, you know, we must preach the gospel. Clearly, we are a word-based community. But as Jesus has repeatedly taught, we must live this word out in community together. So it's like how when you go to major cities, you can find uh, enclaves of, of immigrants living together, you know, who have uh, brought basically their homeland to a new land. Well, that's us. Only this community is, is not, should not be, ethnically based. It's morally based on our relationship to Christ. That's why the church is intergenerational. It should be ethnically diverse, geographically diverse. It's linguistically diverse. And all of it is rooted not in self-definition, but in Christ. So every church should be a living billboard that says, not our own. Not just word, a living billboard. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that when Christians live out this life together, the wisdom of God is demonstrated to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So when we live out the gospel in word and deed, when we come together to worship in genuine love and repentance, it is yet Another announcement to Satan himself that he is lost. Or as Calvin put it this morning in the session meeting, that billboard up Interstate 65 should say, come to church so you can see the devil defeated. That's what it should say. Because that's what Paul says. Well, Jesus follows this up with the warning that those who do not keep his word do not love him. And this, of course is an indictment of, of the world that, that does not know him, does not want to know him. But it's really a warning to God's people. There are people in every congregation, certainly every congregation I've ever been in, who hear the word but do not take it seriously because in reality, they do not love Jesus. Now, maybe they think they should love Jesus. I mean, they, they've heard that their whole life but really they, they don't care. Or maybe they think, you know, church is the sociably acceptable thing to do. It's what we do in the South. And, you know, and I've seen this basically in every Southern city I've ever been in. So there's your, you know, socially respectable Sunday mornings. You make your appearance, you give some money, you smile at the preacher, maybe even shake his hand. Then there's your actual life, the other 6.75 days of the week. It's like some of the parents of youth group kids I knew when I was a youth pastor years ago who thought church was, it was great for teaching morals to kids. But the parents themselves didn't take a bit of this stuff seriously. Sunday school is for the kids, right? You know, once you grow up and you know a few of the commandments, great, off you go to the real world. But, you know, perhaps the most terrifying, and I mean that terrifying examples are those in our circles who really and truly hold to 
orthodox beliefs. I mean, you know, maybe they could go through the Westminster Confession or the Book of Romans and they're in full agreement, especially with, say, tough doctrines like predestination. But when those beliefs get in the way of what they really want to do or what their children want to do, and again, this is what I repeatedly saw in youth ministry, like like parents of travel ball kids. They put those beliefs aside. They keep up a mask of orthodoxy and they ignore the contradiction like a spouse who turns a blind eye to his wife's drinking. Because between what they claim is true and, and how they actually live, because it's two different things, it's actually an indication of what they they really love most. And this is like a recent New York Times op-ed in which a woman made the case that she divorced her husband, not because she didn't love him, but because she loved herself more. Now you might think, what on earth are you talking about? She, 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 She actually wrote, she owed it to herself. She owed it to her husband and to her children who were three and five years old at the time to pursue a a divorce because in her mind, this was the compassionate thing to do for all of them. She still loved her husband. Think about that. She still loved him. She says as much. She still loved her husband, but she simply loved herself more and she refused to be unhappy. You know, you might laugh at how brazen and ludicrous that is. She got a divorce for love of herself. It's like Whitney Houston's song in a marriage, right? But this is how everyone at root, apart from Jesus, lives. And frankly, it's how many Christians live right now, too. You know, we just want to be happy. We just want our kids to be happy. And our culture, you know, it's like the rich young ruler who chose his wealth over Jesus. Only Americans do it without really any sense of regret or shame because we love ourselves so much and think pursuing our personal happiness far exceeds what Jesus can offer. It's like what Augustine once wrote. He said, accordingly, two cities have been formed by two loves, the earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, the heavenly city by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. So this is why we're doing this series. The the pull to the earthly city, to a discipleship in the pursuit of self-love is so intoxicating. I feel it. I feel it. And we hardly notice we're doing it. It's really hard. It's really hard to pursue God-given character, to love as he loved, to be disciplined by him, to be encouraged to address our sin, to say no to ourselves or say no to our children or to give up on defining ourselves. It's why, I'm gonna be frank here, I don't worry about murder in this church. I do worry about gossip. Gossip absolutely destroys Christian community. That's why I come back to Sabbath worship so often because we're in such desperate need of it. And we have this chance, this unique opportunity to be with the Spirit and each other. We say, "Ah, I don't know. That's why I worry about the rejection of godly and biblical correction. 
That's why I worry about anger in online rants or how social media is shaping our hearts, not the least of which is what we're willing to post. You know, after Jesus has given such comforting words, if you were listening to you know, the first 80% of the sermon, after he has given such comforting words to his disciples, his warning is a call to self-reflection over which city do we actually belong? Do we so love ourselves that divorcing God and in turn living for ourselves over and against our neighbors, pursuing our happiness, seems like the best possible option for us, maybe even the compassionate one? You know, the book of Ecclesiastes exists as a witness that such a life really will not give us what we think it will and that it will all end like Solomon's life did in tears. You know, the movement of God's kingdom, notice this, it always begins with his love and then it moves to how we respond to that love and in turn, how we treat each other. And only then, only then, does it move to mission. You know, our God has loved us with a, a steadfast, always faithful love. He has shown us such kindness and such patience. He has promised to never let us go. He has made his home in and amongst us, and he has set us apart for the privilege of witness to the world. And he rules over this world and he shows that rule through us. What a privilege. We're not alone. We are not orphans. This life is not all there is. Our God is with us. So may we turn to him and find our home in him. May we respond to how good he is. May we respond to his grace and his mercy and the leading of his spirit. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you're so good. Your steadfast love endures forever. I'm continually amazed at how patient you are with me, how tender you can be in correcting me, how you're willing to speak truth to me, convict me of sin. I pray that too for my brothers and sisters. I pray that too for us together because we need it, Lord, you know. This walk is a hard one. Help us to treasure you more because it's so hard, yet so beautiful. Lord, work in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.